the cancer just destroyed his body, just destroyed it, invaded every aspect of it. Uh, there's, there's nothing that I wish on any parent ever is to lose a child. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Well, it's a really emotional conversation this week on the podcast. Last week was the first part of the chat with Larry Stapp of Twinbrook Creamery, small dairy farm and, and glass milk bottling operation in Linden, Washington. And he told us all about how Twinbrook came to be and the risks they took and all the work they put in and, and the uncertainty for a while where it looked like they might not make it. This week, things get a bit personal, including Larry opening up about the passing of his son, who passed away only a year after graduating from high school from cancer. Larry also talks about what's happening right now with COVID-19 and how that's affected their business, including one unexpected change that became a lot more complicated than you might think. So he gets into that later, as well as talking about other challenges his farm has faced over the years. And will he ever retire? We get to it all this week as we continue part two of our conversation, again, with Twinbrook Creamery co-owner Larry Stapp, longtime fourth-generation uh, family dairy farmer in Linden, Washington. What's been the hardest time on the farm? <clears throat> the hardest time on the farm probably is um, uh, your 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 responsibility to take care of things, and you have to sacrifice sometimes pleasures. Mm. You know, uh, I can remember when we started way back in seventies, eighties. I mean, you're doing everything, starting out yourself. You're milking the cows, you're feeding them, you're doing this, you're doing that. I mean, it's just push. And then one time, I can remember to this day, my wife said to me, um, don't don't figure on doing anything for a couple of certain days. And she secretly had booked a motel, and we went away for three days, lined up to milk and all that stuff, and that was the, that was the most pleasurable. Mm. I can remember that to this day. I mean, that is huge yet in my mind. But it's it's the... I wouldn't say there's any specific low moment, but it's just you look back on it, and I would say I probably overworked myself sometimes to the detriment of playing with my children. Mm. Yeah, but a lot of that comes as grandparents. You realize, you know, how, how precious your kids were, and and even how more precious your grandchildren are. And and, I, and you look back at it, and I said, boy, I love to spoil my grandchildren. I should have spoiled my kids a lot more too. Uh, that's probably <laughs> probably one of my uh, regrets a little bit, but I think most parents have that in some way, shape, yeah. or form too. So yeah, I mean, I know my parents. Uh, if I want to lay a guilt trip on them, all I have to do is remind them how much I had to work on a farm, and and I I do that in fun because they going through probably the same thing I did. They oh, we worked our kids way too hard, but I never ever looked at it that way when I was a kid. I just enjoy it. I mean, mm. 
getting on a tractor and driving and making hay bales and killing field mice when you're baling hay and, and building forts up in the hay mow during the winter. And, I mean, it was, you know, um, going up in a silo and pitching the silage down, you know. I thought that was a great lot of fun. In actuality, it was a lot of work say, that I did for my dad, you know. I mean, but yeah. it's all right, you know. Um, so no, no huge regrets in a lot of ways. It's just that you sacrifice some family time that you probably shouldn't have. But yet, on the other hand, uh, I don't hear my kids complain too much either. So, well, you talk about your daughter and her husband being involved in the farm, but they're not the only family. No, of yours. That's that's on involved in the, this operation, right? No, that they're the only one financially involved. They're full mm -hmm. partners with us. Um, our oldest son also works full time on the farm here with us. Um, he's got a degree in accounting, so mm -hmm. he's slowly taking over a lot of the uh, bookkeeping and then a lot of the administrative work and all the government regulatory world that we live in in terms of reporting and and forms and on and on that that goes that's that's huge and and so he's doing more and more of that kind of stuff and then we have uh, another daughter that um, she randomly comes and helps us out here does does some things on the farm for us so yeah we have uh, um, lots of family involved uh, it's it's kind of nice like uh, our, our one daughter right now she was working in a restaurant of course with this whole covid pandemic She's off work right now, so mm. I'm able to give her some <laughs> odd jobs to do around here and help out, you see. So um, I feel privileged to do that. I know, and I this may be tough to talk about, so I'm not sure if you want to talk about it, but what about your son that passed away? You know, that was a tough, that was probably a, <clears throat> one of the, it was the lowest point I've ever had in my life, okay? I mm. mean, uh, it was not easy, but two things uh, number one was it really made me appreciate the community that we live in you cannot believe the support and the things that were done for us mm. to this day just boggles my mind i mean it, you know they always talk about a small community everybody knows what everybody else mm -hmm. is doing and oh you know this and that and the gossip and stuff like that yeah. but if you can look beyond that yes everybody else knows what everybody else is doing but it's generally speaking because they care not because they're nosy and that was a huge eye-opener for us okay so having said that he passed away in 2003 and there is no doubt that he would be the one sitting behind the mic right now and not me because he had a passion for farming. Mm. But that also opened the door for my daughter and son in law to step in, which I'm sure was uh, a reflection of, of his passing. And it's it's been so much fun because I can see so much of uh, my son in law and the way my son acted too. And mm. I can see a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember Mark, your son he was a grade behind me in school. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we weren't, like, yeah. great friends or anything, but we were acquaintances. We you know, yeah. knew each other. So I remember him, and I remember him in shop classes and oh, yeah. FFA and stuff like that. How did that happen? What what was it that took his life? He, um, when he was in uh, grade school, he had a um, massive 
tumor grow inside of his head. Okay, massive. Mm. But it was not cancerous, and uh, but it was so large that they could not surgically or uh, uh, radiate it or surgically remove it. So they had to radiate it. Okay. Uh, shrunk it down and it went away but they kept monitoring it and then a few years later it started growing again but they since they were monitoring it they were able to surgically remove it and then um, when he was a senior in high school um, senior just after graduation just after he graduated graduated in 2002 it started growing a third time and this time it was cancerous and um, so they went in and did surgery uh, and it was an incredibly invasive surgery. I mean, you can't begin to describe uh, removal of an eye and on and on and stuff like that. And then when he got through that surgery, uh, then they uh, uh, started chemo and radiation together to aggressively attack it. But it was such an aggressive cancer that um, it just grew right in the face of all that stuff they were throwing at him. And then... Uh, in June of 2003, he passed away just because of the cancer just destroyed his body, just destroyed it, invaded every aspect of it. Uh, there's there's nothing that I wish on any parent ever is to lose a child. That is the most heart-wrenching, hard thing. And, and, and you can't believe how many people in the community have laid a child in the grave. It's pretty astounding what was it like on the farm at that time and the farm that time um, i I actually um can't imagine it it was this was this where his community came in and uh, one day it was so overwhelming and it was in the spring okay field work had to get started and uh i could focus on what i had to do just couldn't so i called up one of my neighboring farmers gentleman by the name of Steve Gruen. I said, Steve, I need help. And uh, he came over and he said, go in the house, we'll take care of it all. (laughs) So crops got planted, crops got harvested. And the the fellow farmers around the community, dairy and non-dairy, they all lined up to get out there to do something. And some of them had to wait till second and third cutting just to get there their their donated time and equipment in it was just absolutely the most amazing thing i could that's where the community just stepped up i mean just one small part that they did for me i mean it it is it is beyond belief what uh what they did but my mind was just so overwhelmed i i literally could not could not function what do you think mark would think of all the stuff that you're doing now i don't know i don't know I think he'd be right in the middle of it. He would just be loving it. You know, the kid just, he was something. But you can't dwell on what ifs. Yeah. Because they aren't. I know you've mentioned a few times struggles with dealing with regulation. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What, what, what kind of stuff have you actually had to deal with? Well, you know, a lot of the regulatory world responds to hype, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, a story gets out there about farms pollute, okay? So then the, uh, the legislature thinks they got to step up and pass laws to protect the environment. And so much of it can be done 
uh, in error. They do not realize the consequences oftentimes of a lot of the things that are passed upon us. Um, just to kind of give you an example, uh, I always say every law passed or every action taken, whatever, has consequences, but they also have unintended consequences. All right, here, here's, a, here's a really simple example. Um, people think we need big buffers, okay, for application of our manure or nutrients onto the field, away mm -hmm. from waterways and stuff like that. We call them big dump buffers because there's no science behind it, basically. So uh, you take a field, and let's just say you take a 20-acre field surrounded by drainage ditches, which I have a lot of because I farm a lot of peat ground, and you put 100-foot buffers in there all the way around that field. You've basically taken away half or maybe even more of my uh, land application base for um, my nutrients. So what do I have to do? I have to go find more land further away, probably cause more environmental damage by trucking it up and down the road with trucks or tractors or whatever, or over-apply. And that's no good either because then you can have more service runoff and stuff. When in actuality, just by applying a buffer that is, let's just say, big uh, at the appropriate times of the year, small at the appropriate times of the year, make them flexible, make them uh, 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 driven by common sense, I call it, for lack of a better word. Um, but there again, some of that stuff can be just passed through ignorance, not really thinking about the unintended consequences. And so a lot of times you have to try to educate uh, your, um, your, your uh, politicians, you know, your elected officials, um, and, and to be honest with you, sometimes right in, uh, in the uh, offices that uh, are in, for, uh, in charge of enforcing the regulations, a lot of times those people can have their own agendas too. And, and uh, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. But uh, um, I always find that 99% uh, of it is um, communication. Talk with them, uh, figure it out. Uh, I'm not afraid to bring people onto my farm that are especially in the regulatory and, and political world to explain to them, show them what's going on. Um, and, and it makes all the difference in the world when they can see what's actually going on and, and, uh, and they understand it. And then the other thing that you can do is build a relationship so that um, if you have concerns, they know who you are and we can talk or they can call us and stuff like that. So, um, and, and that's really been really been good um, over the years. I used to have more of a confrontational attitude when I was younger, um, but I've kind of matured and said there's better ways. Yeah, don't you want to protect the environment? Absolutely. I mean, well, one of the one of the things I've I've learned is um, uh, we farm close to a, a creek called Fish Trap Creek, and it flows into the Nooksack River, which flows into um, uh, the bay out there by our uh, Lummi uh, Indian Reservation friends, and they have uh, oyster beds and. and um, shellfish beds out there that they harvest. Well, if we contaminate the waterways here, it gets dumped on top of their shellfish beds. That's just another form of agriculture. Why would I want to destroy 
one form of agriculture at the expense of another. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so there's just an example of uh, why to keep it good. Uh, the other thing, too, is uh, I have uh, a couple of streams that are borders on, borderlines on my property. They're fantastic um, salmon uh, spawning streams. And uh, there's nothing more fun in the fall, especially to see all them salmon spawning stuff here. And why would I want to destroy that habitat? I mean, it gives me great joy just to watch them, period. And, and then in the spring, you see all the little fingerlings running around the ditch and stuff like that. Um, it's all part of our mission statement, be stewards. Maybe not just of the land that we purposely farm or the cows that we purposely take care of, but it's all around us. It's all part of our, uh, all part of our mandate. What about lawsuits? I know that's become a big thing in the farming world that's mm -hmm. not talked about much, but I know farms, I hear it time and again, are, are concerned about litigation. Yep. Litigation uh, is brought on by poor laws. Hmm. And when I say poor laws, the laws themselves are not bad, but the law also allows for what they call third-party um, lawsuits. And a third-party can... Uh, law, uh, file a lawsuit against a farmer because they think that they're not uh, following the law, okay, of, of some, sort of, some sort of pollution or whatever, okay. And the, the challenge of it is this. It oftentimes, even if you're innocent, which most farmers are, it will cost you more to go all the way through the legal system than it will to settle out of court. The settling out of court is cheaper, but it accomplishes generally nothing mm. except lining a lawyer's pockets because they get fully compensated for their legal costs, typically. You know, one of the things that a lot of um, people don't understand is on, the, on a federal third-party lawsuit, uh, let's just say a, a group decides to sue a farmer because they've caused damage to a harmed party. And let's just assume that um, the third party wins and the farmer loses. The third party can receive no financial compensation out of that lawsuit. But the lawyers typically don't tell them that, mm. okay? But the lawyers get fully compensated for all their work, you know, and then there's all these other little programs that get part of the settlement and stuff like that. So that's why if you want to improve the environment, if you want to do it, you sit down and you talk about it and you work out before lawsuits ever happen. That's the way things get done. When, when, when lawsuits happen... People just back their backs up against the wall and it becomes a legal fight. And, and really, nothing oftentimes will get accomplished in terms of uh, benefiting the environment. It's, it's a sad way to go. I mean, there is uh, sometimes a, a legal need for that, and I'm not disputing that. You know, there, there are places for that. But oftentimes it's used as a... A legalized form of uh, uh, extortion, hmm. not so much as a uh, productive uh, lawsuit to accomplish uh, an environmental upgrade. What do you think the future of our 
food system is? Well, you know, I do not like this this COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. But all of a sudden, people are waking up to, wow, we better keep our food supply local. Mm. Because all of a sudden, all the pharmaceutical stuff and the medications and all this stuff that we're dependent on foreign countries, hmm, we're kind of at somebody's mercy all of a sudden. I mean, it happened a number of years ago with the oil embargo in the Middle East. And so I think it's probably been a little bit of an eye-opener in terms of a lot of people recognizing the fact that we need to keep our food supply um, on our on our home soil. Um, I've talked with a lot of people before, uh, in the, over the course of this time, and one of the things I said is, um, share when I grew up as a kid, you know, we, we only time we got strawberries was in strawberry season. The only time we got green beans is when green beans were in season. The only time we got corn on the cob is when corn was in season. Now you can go to the grocery store and buy it year-round, just about any time. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from your backyard anymore. It's probably imported, you know, and... Is that the way we want to go? Is that really necessary? I mean, we are incredibly spoiled as consumers in what we can get in a grocery store. And uh, maybe we don't need all that. Sadly, I heard recently with what's happening with COVID, um, a CSA in our region, a community-supported mm-hmm. agriculture now farm that, that does CSA boxes, their orders went way up. Mm-hmm. But right away, also, these new subscribers, they got calls apparently within the first week of people saying, well, I, I want strawberries in my, well, yeah. it's not strawberry season. No. Well, what the heck? Why can't I have strawberries? Yeah. Yep. It, it, to me, I just, I don't want to believe that, that people are that far disconnected. They are, you know, and, and it's, um, well, it, it's good and it's bad. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible success story to the grocery stores and and the whole support network behind moving food around this country and around the world. I mean, now we can just do it incredibly well, you know, with refrigeration and freezing and 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 um, all that kind of stuff. And we've spoiled we got spoiled as consumers. There's no doubt about it. But maybe it's time to step back and say you know what? Uh, maybe it's not so important that I have strawberries year-round or or whatever, you know. Um, milk's year-round. We can get yeah. you that anytime, you know. That goes around uh, 24-7. So. At the same time, you guys have dealt with, you've proven that it's possible, but you've dealt with the challenges of going local, of bringing that local product to market to those more mainstream stores that people are used to shopping at. Yep. <sighs> It's, I would guess, when you've learned how that works behind the scenes, you maybe realize it's not as easy as some people might think. I I know the grocery stores get demonized quite a bit, and it's not always their fault that the system works the way that it does. No, it doesn't. But, you know, on the other hand, um, we talk about smaller and uh, uh, fewer and bigger farms. It, it's the same thing that's going on in in the grocery world, you know. So the bigger you get, the less flexibility you have and stuff like that. But here are able to offer some other services that uh, other stores might not be able to do. 
<clears throat> I um, I got a lot of sympathy for the grocery um, community. Um, one of the things that they struggle with is the same thing we talked about earlier: lawsuits. Mm. You know, consumers are looking to make uh, pretend they slipped on a banana peel or or they got sick eating this berry or this um, cereal or whatever. So liability is, is a huge thing for the grocery stores. You know, it's, it's huge. And then as part of that liability, too, is um, it, it's kind of a reflection of our society. But if you're big and corporate, you owe me. So I have the ability to go in and steal. And mm. it doesn't bother my conscience because... Mm. You're so big and so wealthy that I, you have to share some of that wealth with me, you know. And I've talked to so many grocery store managers and stuff like that. And what it costs them in terms of legal and documentation and stuff, the way the laws are set up to stop a shoplifter, that it sometimes it's cheaper for them to let that shoplifter walk out the door than it is to prosecute. And that's a sad sign of our society, very sad. Not only because that person thinks that that's okay that they do that, but our society or our legal world or whatever has become so rigid and so structured that we actually allow that to happen because of cost. Versus the principle. Versus the principle, yep. With COVID happening, this pandemic, what's that change for your farm and your operation? It, uh, at first, we thought this will be just fine because we process our own milk and we sell it to the stores. And in actuality, the first week uh, after the, I don't know if it was a stay home or whatever, when all the businesses and restaurants and stuff that had to close, our milk sales made a significant jump. And then uh, uh, the second week into it, we got a star uh, a call from a major grocery store chain that said that they do not want to take uh, our empty glass returns into their store because they're concerned of what that empty glass bottle could possibly bring in in terms of contamination such as the COVID virus. Um, I thought it might have been a little bit of an overreach. I thought there was ways that we could manage around it, but it was made at uh, levels way higher than I care to know about in the <laughs> corporate world. And uh, they said, so not only do we not want to take glass at this time, but then we would not like to even sell your glass off the shelf. Mm. Well, the store chain that um, told us that was probably one of our largest single group of stores that... Um, constitutes a pretty significant portion of our business. So we got that call on uh, 10.30 on a Monday morning that uh, our milk sales were done in that store. Mm. Uh, so I immediately got on the phone, and this was the beauty of building relationships over the years with, uh, with those people. Uh, they said if we can find an alternative uh, package that uh, they would carry our milk because they absolutely loved our and what it's done for their stores and the local and the profitability. So by Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we were bottling milk in plastic bottles. Mm. 
And I tell you what, that was it was chaos. It was crazy, but you can't use the same equipment to do that. You can't use the same equipment. You know, you have to hand apply labels. You got to find plastic jugs. You got to, you know, we had to design and uh, design a label, um, get it uh, printed, and then find people to start putting them all on our jugs and stuff like that. So even to this day now, we're doing about half maybe in plastic uh, to satisfy those stores during the crisis time and half is still in our glass but uh, it's a significant cost hit to us because of all these additional costs that we have to um, pr uh, be incur just to pr uh, bottle our milk again yet but you know what we're bottling milk it's being sold it's maybe not being sold at quite the previous volume it was uh, we have a very very uh, loyal and now happy even yet a uh, bunch of employees because uh, we're able to fully keep them employed mm. um, at this way and doing this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's been a stressful couple of weeks around here. There's no doubt about that. How are you protecting but, your employees with the threat of the virus? You know, a lot of people are staying home, but you guys are an essential business, so they're still coming. You to know, work. we there's, there's not, I mean, yeah, there are things you can do, but, uh, we have safety meetings. We talk about, um, you know, reinforcing how many times you wash your hands every day. We uh, completely, uh, during the uh, end of the day, um, we're just sanitizing everything. You know, we got a foaming machine and we're just spraying it all over with sanitizer. And and then uh, have safety meetings. And we I really uh, stress to uh, our employees to think about what you're doing when you're not working here. Be aware of it. And uh, what, what I try to impress upon them, uh, and I've learned this from myself, is um, if I get the virus, I may survive, you know, because if you're young enough and healthy enough, um, those typically, it'll, it'll feel like a flu from what I understand. And mm -hmm. I think there's so much misinformation out there. Yeah. But if I were to get it, let's just say, um, and I continually see my parents who live right next door to me, they're 87 and 89, and if I were to expose them to it, I would feel pretty bad. Mm. Um, so you have to think beyond yourself with this COVID-19 thing. And uh, I've got a great bunch of employees and uh, uh, they're doing a great job for me. And, and I think they're very, very mindful of it all, very much so. Probably a now, lot of people would have never thought of the glass bottle thing, back to that no. hiccup. Explain how that works, too. I mean, we talked about the, the benefit of glass bottles mm -hmm. earlier, and then that was your kind of niche. Yep. But how does that, you, you guys market this stuff in a glass bottle, and then it's available in the store, and you get a basically a refund price when you bring that glass back? Yeah, when a consumer buys our milk, you might say they're actually buying two things. They're buying the milk that's in the jar for a set price that the store determines, and then they pay a deposit on that glass jar. Now, the consumer can do one of two things. They can decide to keep that glass jar if they want, and or they can return it back to the store and get their deposit refund. And then we refund the stores or bring them back here to our, our little bottling plant and wash and sanitize and refill them again. That's part of our sustainability. Um, that's how the whole system works, but... Then the fear of what the what the uh, bottles would be bringing into the stores is what stopped it for a pretty significant number of stores. I will say that 
uh, some of and the it, stores. And it wasn't on the, the front end because they're sanitized and clean when they come. It's That's about right. people bringing them back from their homes. Bringing the empties back from their use. homes. That yeah. was, yeah. That's that was their fear. Um, I I I can't argue with the stores, um, but I do know that there you know a lot of suggested ways that they could um, mitigate that by doing yeah. things a little bit different. But but uh, that's their choice. So um, yeah, I I just um, I don't know what kind of a bin they have to put them in. But can you put it out front or something so they don't have to come in uh, the store? Oh uh, yeah, there, there, think about there, all these things. There's there's a lot of ways, huh? and and yeah. we've sent out suggestions to the stores. Uh, yeah how to how to accommodate it and, and still be safe um, some of them are doing it some of them aren't so why do people like the glass bottle well part of it is the sustainability they can return it it's not uh, filling a landfill okay it's not a plastic jug it's not a carton um, I always say uh, we're a glass bottle is one step above recycling it's reusable mm-hmm. and uh, that's huge uh, and, and that's an ever-growing concern in our in our nation and our world these nowadays um you hear about the the plastic blobs out in the ocean and you hear about and see trains and trucks running up and down the road full of garbage you know bringing it to landfills and and we live in a in a, in a terrible throwaway society and if one little part that we can do is this um we're thankful for that and so that's why we went to the glass it also gave us a, a marketing opportunity that we would not have had otherwise. So, yeah. Um, it opened the door for us to a, a lot of stores, for which we give much thanks. Yeah, things have really changed. You're talking about recycling. Things have really changed recently with plastic, too, in yeah. recent years, where that market just isn't there anymore. Yeah. And it's not necessarily going to China, where it was being recycled, or who knows what was happening with it there. So that's been, I think, a bit of a wake-up call for yeah, Just you know, assuming that you keep putting stuff in a disposable jug, I think more and more people are going to be interested yeah. in, in that part of what you guys do. You know, and, and a lot of it is driven by economics, um, good, bad, or otherwise. But uh, uh, when it costs more to recycle and remake something than what the, uh, the original uh, is, unless you are driven to pay more for that, um, that uh, reused or recycled product, um, it, it ain't going to happen. So that's why I think you see in a lot of, uh, uh, like you say, the plastic is, is gone downhill because to uh, recycle the plastic and, and uh, remanufacture an item is, is very costly. And when they can take, uh, well, just for a, for example, a plastic milk jug is probably, you know, I, I've never looked into it because I don't know how to, if they even make such a thing, but it probably be half price for a new one versus uh, a recycled one, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, that has been melted down and reformed and all that stuff. Uh, um, so it's, it's driven by economics. Um, one of the things that kind of always bothers me just a little bit, too, is so often it seems like the more stable and necessary an item is in a consumer's life, the cheaper it has to be. Mm. And an example is food. People yeah. don't want to pay much for food. But, you know, their travel trailers and their vacations and all that stuff, usually it's not too much of a price uh, issue, but uh, boy, we can't pay much for food. And, and uh, that's why uh, uh, sometimes I think we need to refocus uh, our priorities. And, it is the stuff that keeps us alive. That's right. Yep, <laughs> that's right. Yep. 
Yeah. You ever think about retiring? As I said earlier, I want to retire. I'm 65. I created this monster I don't know how to get away from yet. But we're in the process of beginning the stages of yeah. planning that out and how that will all work. So Yeah, you can't yeah. keep up the pace that you've done no. forever. No, and in actuality, I have um, had the ability to uh, transfer a lot of my responsibilities off already. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not in charge of the processing plant anymore. I can go out there, I know exactly what's all going on, but I'm not in charge. Um, same with uh, my oldest son uh, taking over a lot of the administrative. He's doing a lot of that. And my son-in-law, he he pretty much takes care of the uh, the cow and the, and the land end of it. So mm. start, starting to shed more and more of my responsibilities uh, and delegate them out. Uh, the hard part is the things that you have built relationships up and dealt with over all these years. That uh, That's my struggle is how to... Uh, how to uh, transfer that to someone. I mean, my ideal would be to transfer it to a family member, but there's nobody ready in the wings and waiting to do that. So um, that's how we're, we're, we're just beginning to have some meetings on, on how yeah. to make that thing work. So, yep. Thank you so much for sharing your whole story and, and everything that goes into this. It's, it's fascinating. Well, thank you. I enjoy doing it. Uh, as I said, we are truly blessed beyond, beyond uh, what we deserve. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. What an incredible story, right? And people think Twinbrook Creamery is so cool already with their glass bottles and small farm vibe and Jersey cows and cream top non-homogenized milk. But when you hear all of that, the human story behind Twinbrook Creamery, it just takes it to the next level of appreciating what goes in to that milk that you can buy at the store. Again, my name is Dylan Honkoop, and this is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm really thankful that you're here and you're following. Follow us on social media if you haven't. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We've got a lot more ahead, and we're figuring out ways to get the podcast to keep on going, even in this age of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we certainly hope that you are staying safe and healthy out there take care everybody and um, if you have a little extra time maybe you're quarantining catch up on a few episodes of the podcast as well uh, it's a great time to to do that and and if you do have the time again make sure to subscribe maybe if you have a lot of time shoot me an email i'd love to chat what are your thoughts on local food in washington uh, grown food and farmers and maybe you have questions that you'd like answered um, maybe I can go dig up a farmer or two who could answer your question and either get back to you in an email or talk about it on the podcast maybe you've got a suggestion of a farm uh, to talk uh, with or, or an issue to cover would love to hear any of it you can email me well you can message me on any of the the real food real people social media platforms right now we're on Facebook Twitter and Instagram or you can just email me directly, dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org. It's my email address. I get it. It's on my phone. 
So anytime you send that, I will get it pretty much right away. Unless for some reason my daughters are distracting me or something. Uh, but I, w- I would really love to hear from you. Again, Dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org. Um, Dylan is spelled D-I-L-L-O-N, by the way. And yes, realfoodrealpeople.org is the website. So go check that out there. And just mentioning that reminds me, I need to get blogging too and share some of my own story and some of the things I've been ruminating on and learning uh, and some of the things going on even behind the scenes as we develop and and continue to grow this podcast. So thanks for being a, a part of this and we will catch you back here next week. Oh, and I should also thank our sponsors. Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. You can find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.